Hello and thanks for clicking. You're listening to Ancient Bloggers Podcast. If you're new, welcome. And if returning, then thanks for sticking with me. You can find me on Twitter at Ancient Blogger, Facebook and YouTube. Links to all of these are on my website, ancientblogger.com. There's a whole bunch of other stuff on there, so feel free to have a nose. If you have listened to my earlier podcasts, you'll have noticed the new intro music, thus undoing the proverb, you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. And in this instance, it's particularly apt, as I'm looking at pets in antiquity. It's certainly a tad cheerier than my last podcast on Pompeii. In this podcast, expect to learn about what pets were popular, ingenious uses for a pair of trousers, Bond villain wannabes, and crime-solving, which would put Scooby and Lassie to shame. Let's get to it. We'll start with an animal you probably expected, the dog. And we meet our four-legged friend numerous times in antiquity, but I'm going to start with three examples from Greek myth. First up, a dog called Mira, who belonged to Icarus. Not the chap with the wings, but one who was first taught viniculture by Dionysus, at least according to one myth. Enthused by his results, Icarus shared his first batch with some shepherds, who duly thought they were being poisoned, and stoned poor Icarus to death, possibly worthwhile in mentioning exactly what he was given them to start with. Anyway, his dog, Mira, helped Icarus's daughter out. He found the grave, and in despair at the loss of his master, sadly leapt into a well, Not quite Scooby or Lassie, because Lassie usually save people from whales, but either case, a somewhat poignant reference to the loyalty showed by dogs to their masters. The second myth involves no canine fatalities, just another human. You may have heard of Actaeon, a hunter who was transformed into a stag, and thus torn to bits by his own hounds. Where this is of interest is the naming conventions of the dogs. Xenophon, wrote a treatise on hunting in the 4th century BC, and recommended names for dogs being functional, two-syllable names, easy to shout out. Of the list, Xenophon provides include Blazer, Fury, Growler, Riot, Hillary, and Blossom. Yep, you heard those last two correctly. This seems to coincide with the names the Roman poet Ovid gave for the name of names of Actian's hounds, and here are some. Blackfoot, Tracker, Glossy, Glutton, Ranger, Rover, yay, Hunter, Dingle, Spot and Nasher, the last one being something for the fans of the Beano. Of course, here's the first split. Names given to hunting dogs reflect a more pragmatic context. That's not to say there wasn't an affinity shared between hunting dogs and their owners. One of the most moving early references to this is found in the Odyssey. Now, I expect that you're familiar with the tale. When Odysseus finally returns home, Athena changes him into an old beggar to avoid being noticed by anyone. Despite this, Argus, his hunting dog, recognises him. It's a really touching scene. Even Odysseus sheds a tear. But what I find really interesting is that it doesn't really serve as function to the story. Odysseus has already greeted his son, and it's not there to cause tension. Take, for example, the idea of the dog recognising him in front of the suitors or in an awkward situation. That doesn't happen. I think it's there purely to show affection and that bond between dog and owner. Perhaps Homer was a bit of a dog lover. Small jugs called Cues, C-H-O-U-S, often feature small lap dogs. 
which look a bit like modern-day pomeriums. This type of dog was often referred to as a Militon, because it came from Milite. Now, whether this is an island off the Illyrian coast or modern-day Malta is debated. Dogs like this appear on Greek vases, often playing with young children or at school with young men. Imagine that, being able to take your dog to school. The Greeks seem to have had an affinity with dogs. Pericles' father, Xanthippus, had a tomb for his, which joined him when he evacuated Athens during the Persian invasion. Later that century, Alcibiades caused absolute outrage when he docked the tail off his prize dog. Turning our eyes eastwards, though, a somewhat unusual site was discovered in Ashkelon, modern Israel. Lots of dogs were buried at a site, which dated between the 5th and 3rd centuries BC. It's not fully understood what the context of it all was, but it certainly wasn't sacrificial. These dogs were buried with care, and one argument suggests this was a sort of dog hospital where they were held as sacred, or in some way of a healing cult. This isn't unusual, and we'll see later that this is also the case in Greece, albeit with a very different type of animal. The concept of a pet dog wasn't lost on the Romans. Aemilius Paulus, a famous general of the 1st and 2nd centuries BC, returned home to find his daughter crying over the sad loss of her pet puppy who had passed away. Pliny heaps praise upon the dog, and needless to say, the 1st century AD pessimist and all-round grumpy old man juvenile finds the dog a bit of an irritant. But perhaps not the dog per se, just the attitude towards the lapdog. In his thick satire, juveniles suggest that many wives would rather see their husbands die than lose their pet dog. This view is somewhat echoed in an epigram by Marshall, who portrays Publius's lapdog as really quite a spoilt creature. Well, at least it's house-trained, as it always lets its master know when it needs to attend the call of nature via a little paw tap. It's in the imperial period where we see a rise in the number of stelae, or gravestones for dogs. It's obviously difficult to describe them fully, so instead I'll give you an epitaph for one. The dog's name was Margarita, which apparently meant pearl, and it dates to the 1st or 2nd century AD, and is even written from the perspective of the dog. Here it goes. Just put on my best reading voice. Gaul gave me my birth, and the pearl oyster from the seas full of treasure my name, an honour fitting to my beauty. I was trained to run boldly through strange forests, and to hunt out furry wild beasts in the hills. Never accustomed to be held by heavy chains, nor endure cruel beatings on my snow-white body. I used to lie on the soft lap of my master and mistress, and knew to go to bed when tired on my spread mattress. And I did not speak more than aloud as a dog, given a silent mouth, no one was scared of my barking. But now I've been overcome by death from an ill-fated birth, and earth has covered me beneath this small piece of marble. Well, I'd rather not leave it there, we need something a bit more upbeat. And what better way than dogs playing detectives? Not quite Ace the Bat-Hound, yes, Batman had a detective dog, but impressive nonetheless. We'll start with a story involving Pyrrhus, who stumbled upon a dog guarding its master's corpse and decided to adopt it. A short while later, during an inspection of his troops, the dog started acting up, barking at a specific couple of them. Pyrrhus noted this and had them questions where they admit full guilt of murdering the dog's previous owner. Another dog guarding a temple of Asclepius tracked down the burglar by itself and drew enough attention to him by barking that those investigating the break-in soon caught up. As a reward, the dog was voted a ration of food. There's even a dog mentioned by Pliny which managed to extract a confession from the man who had murdered his master by continually haranguing him. In conclusion, all of the above would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for that pesky dog. Before I move on to our next animal, I've been asked about Rottweilers and whether they were the Roman guard dogs. 
Now it seems that Rottweilers are descended from Roman cattle dogs, or at least their ancestors were. Roman guard dogs weren't a specific breed as such, and it's likely that was a mastiff or similar type. So I don't think the Rottweilers look exactly how they would have done back then, or exactly filled the same purpose they do now. But you'd expect that the dog guarding Roman prisoners or in camps would have looked somewhat similar to them. They have much the similar attributes. Anyway, on to the next pet. I can't really imagine anyone being surprised by dogs being listed as pets in Greece and Rome. So allow me then to throw a bit of a, a curveball your way when I suggest that snakes were kept in this format too. Snakes in Greece go way back. A goddess figure holding two snakes was discovered in Crete and imaginatively renamed the Minoan snake goddess. It dates to the mid-2nd millennium BC. Snakes and snake worship seem to have been prevalent in the ancient Aegean and even creep into the more modern Greek myths. Take the Hydra, which Hercules fought. And then there's the snake at Delphi, which Apollo defeated and took ownership of the sanctuary from. Possibly appointed to an earlier form of worship there. Where the blend of snake worship and snakes kept as pets seems to take place is in the worship of Dionysus. Snakes were welcome in vineyards, where they kept vermin away from the vines and the grapes. You can see how their association with their vine locked them in, and in Euripides Bacchae, a play about Dionysus, his worshippers are quite happy handling and holding snakes, even wearing them. Of course, the Greeks knew that they were dangerous. Adrian Mare covers the wide use of snake vellum on arrow tips and snakes in general in her book Greek Fire, Poison Arrows and Scorpion Bombs, something I bought a while back, well worth reading. Yet they were also able to handle them and use the less or non-venomous species for other purposes. It's worth remembering that Alexander the Great's mum, Olympias, was a fervent snake worshipper who handled and kept snakes regularly. At Apodaurus, an entire complex was devoted to healing and snakes were central to this. They shared the space with patients and doctors. The snake had always been associated with health and rejuvenation. You'll often find the staff of Asclepius used in the medical industry as a symbol. It's a staff with a snake coiling round it, and this has been confused with the Caduceus, a staff or wand with two snakes curled and meeting at the top. This is what Hermes used to guide souls to the underworld, so perhaps not the best symbol to use for healthcare purposes. A neat link between the snake as pest control and Epidaurus can be found in Livy. In 290 BC, Rome suffered a pestilence, possibly mice infestation, and snakes, or Asclepius, was sent for from Apodaurus. This may have meant that Rome asked for a supply of human-friendly snakes from there to keep the rodents in control. And it seems that snakes were employed on a large scale in, in Greece for the same purpose. Weasels and snakes are kept to keep mice away, whereas cats aren't even mentioned as being employed in this context. By the time of Imperial Rome, we find two mentions of the snake as a pet. The first is Tiberius, who had a snake whilst residing in Capri. He was about to return to Rome, but found his snake dead and took it as a portent. Really, not much of a, of a portent, because he generally didn't like going back to Rome, but it convinced him that he really shouldn't go back there. It put his life in danger. The second is a bit more frivolous and belongs to Marshall. It gives us more of an insight, as a couple of snakes are actually worn around the shoulders as a statement piece by Glorkilla. But I do think Brittany wore it better. According to Herodotus, each spring snakes would travel across from Arabia and try and get into Egypt. 
This may not seem unusual until you read their method of travel. The snakes unconventionally would fly. These flying snakes are prevented from progressing, not by Samuel L. Jackson and a sardonic quip, but by ibises, which defeated them each time. And this lends me the opportunity to seamlessly link into the next pet, birds. Much like snakes, birds were involved in Greek religion. Think of Calchas and Iliad. Calchas was an augur, skilled in reading the flight of birds, and it's he who reveals how and why Apollo is punishing the Greeks at the start. But why do they make pets? Interestingly, it's Homer who cites them in this context. Penelope in the Odyssey has 20 geese as pets. But it wasn't just the high and mighty in literature. Anacreon, a poet writing in the 6th century BC, dedicated an ode to his pet dove. Skipping to classical Athens, we have Aristophanes' birds. Obviously, this references a large number of different species of birds, but also implies that there were bird sellers in the Agora or the Athenian market. And this is even more directly mentioned in his work, Peace. Pet birds are evident on Greek vases, where children play with them. Somewhat poignantly, they're also featured quite often in stelae or gravestones of children. It can be difficult to appreciate the context of them here. When they feature on stelae as funerary art, it may have been they were there to represent something, rather than indicate the child had a bird. For example, small birds might simply be to remind the viewer that it was a young child. It could also be read in a more abstract way as a comment on the delicacy and brevity of a young life ended. We also see birds as gifts between men, but not just any birds. Gamecocks were a popular gift. They represented masculinity and fighting courage. Cockfighting, no, stop it, was a popular pastime in Greece and Rome. In fact, Plutarch has it that Antony fell out initially with Octavian or their relationship was soured because Octavian's birds would always beat his in a fight. Thankfully, in Rome, birds were more often seen out of the context of blood spores. Catullus wrote a poem about his love's pet sparrow, a marshal's Tessilla built a monument to her nightingale. Nightingales were really prized due to their ability to sing so beautifully. One was bought for Agrippina, the emperor Claudius's wife, and it cost 6,000 sesterces, a sizable sum. But birds weren't just for the rich. Pliny also tells of a raven, which made its home in the shop of a shoemaker in Rome. It was an excellent mimic and each day would fly to the forum where it would salute Tiberius and others who gathered there. It became quite a celebrity, but sadly this made a rival shoemaker jealous, who killed the bird. Outrage ensued and the rival shoemaker escaped the city but was killed soon after. The raven was given a prominent funeral, even carried to the funeral pyre on a litter. Birds which could mimic or speak obviously had a hold on people, and this gave the power a real advantage in the popularity stakes. Ovid wrote a poem praising a green Indian parrot. It's quite something is not only exalts the bird, he also gets a lot of digs in at other birds as well. Pliny is a bit more sober about the parrot though. He reminds us that you can't get them or allow them anywhere near wine. Perhaps Pliny was anticipating a more famous saying involving being drunk as a parrot. Though an able mimic, the parrot was outshone by one animal, the monkey. The Aegean was a cultural superhighway, a sort of internet with more bridges and water, but fewer trolls. As such, it's little surprise that we encounter the monkey quite early on. A skull of a small monkey was found in Thera dating to the 15th century BC, and there is of course the famous blue monkeys on the walls at Knossos. There's also a figurine dating to the 8th, 7th century BC from Nimrod in Mesopotamia, who has a monkey on his shoulder, not on his back, literally on his shoulder. 
Simonides, thought to be writing in the 7th century BC, had a bit of a rant in the form of a poem, where the various types of women are discussed. Simonides argues that the various characters of women are based on animals. and The woman based on a monkey or an ape does not fare well. She is both the ugliest and the least trustworthy. It's Pindar in the 5th century who picks up the idea of an ape or monkey being delightful for children. And the monkey mantle is picked up with some relish by Aristophanes. Sadly, it's not very positive. Being called a monkey, or a reference to one, implied a level of untrustworthiness. I suppose the idea here is that something which can act in a human way, but isn't human, is a sort of form of deceit. It could be that this aspect really found traction due to the form of government in the latter part of the 5th century BC. A political system such as democracy required honest participation, speeches and the like. Being a monkey, i.e. saying one thing, meaning another, or imitating sincerity, wasn't ever going to win you many plaudits with Aristophanes. In fact, if Aristophanes thinks at any point that you are being genuine, he goes for you. And you can often see this depicting in his plays, where he brutally attacks various politicians. But anyway, less politics, more pets. It wasn't just comedy in Athens which saw the monkey as a source of amusement or scorn. Plautus includes a scene where a slave states that he was chasing a monkey across a roof, as opposed to doing what he was alleged to have been doing. It's argued that well as being as a comic image, this may have been an idiom. Chasing a monkey meaning something was unbelievable. Going one step further, Liberius, a Roman comic, wrote a play in the 1st century BC called The Cretan. It doesn't survive, which is a huge loss to modern literature, given that the plot involved a pharmacist falling in love with a monkey. Think of it as the mannequin of its time. Uh, I appreciate I'm really showing my age with that reference. Needless to say, there's a wide variety of monkeys possible for the Greeks and the Romans, but it seems the most common or most likely to have been common was the Barbary macaque. One was found in Pompeii, and even as far as Roman forts in Catterick and Roxeter, both in the UK, though these date to the 1st or 2nd centuries AD. A find from Spain much, much later in the 5th or 6th century even had a macaque buried with medals. It's a tempting prospect that monkey mascots existed and perhaps even dressed for the occasion for their respective armies. Surely, surely funding needs to be found for this. We need more monkeys and outfits found from history. Back to the 1st century BC. Other monkeys or apes would have been existed and would have been kept as pets. For example, Cicero was highly agitated simply by the sight of a baboon riding in a chariot, which gives the idea of road rage a terrifying hue. Certainly wouldn't let a baboon anywhere near myself, let alone a moving vehicle. But I hear you ask, how are monkeys caught or source for the pet trade? Well, thankfully, we have Strabo writing the first century BC, and he offers some insight. I shall quote. The chase of this animal is conducted in two different manners. It is an imitative creature and takes refuge up amongst the trees. The hunters, when they perceive a monkey seated on a tree, place inside a basin containing water, with which they wash their own eyes. Then, instead of water, they put a basin of bird lime, go away and lie and wait at a distance. The animal leaps down and besmears itself with the bird lime, and when it winks, the eyelids are fastened together. The hunters then come upon it and take it. The other method of capturing is as follows. 
The hunters dress themselves in bags like trousers and go away, leaving behind them others which are hairy and with the inside smeared with bird lime. The monkeys put them on and are easily taken. Well, that's the eternal question answered then. Thankfully, both methods seem to involve that the pets weren't hurt or badly injured. I imagine the bird liner would have been easily washed up because there's no point trying to sell an injured animal. So there we have it, some of the pets from antiquity. You may be surprised, as I was, by the lack of cats. It seems the cat never really caught on. The Greeks had weasels and snakes to keep the mice and rodents down. So it was denied that element of a practical need, which would have given it a bit of a foothold. There is a statue base in Athens, which you may have seen, and it features a cat, but references to them tend to be very few and far between. It's not really until Rome in the first century AD when they're even noted as regular house pets. A special mention should also go to fish. The Romans were the first to create pools or ponds purely for keeping fish, and often eels, which they might have golden trinkets attached to them, in an effort to achieve peak gaudiness. But eels weren't just pretty. In a manner of a Bond villain, more specifically Blofeld, one Roman, Vedius Pollio, was about to throw a servant to Lamphrase when Augustus intervened and stopped him. Whether Pollio had plans to move into Vesuvius and build a base there is unknown. And on that thought, we've reached the end of this episode. I'll be back soonish. I plan on doing a spooky themed episode in time for Halloween, as there are a fair few ghost tales from antiquity. Wherever you have listened to this, please take the time to review or leave a comment. I'm still getting used to doing all this, so it's always nice to have a bit of feedback. So, thanks again. Until next time, keep happy. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!